This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Designing Reality, How to Survive and Thrive in the Third Digital Revolution by the Gershenfeld Brothers in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 5, The Roadmap Envisioning the future impact of digital fabrication has been a science fiction staple, even if it wasn't always called that. In the Star Trek TV series, the replicator was a handy device that could produce any required story element, which more often meant than not meant Captain Picard requesting tea, Earl Grey, hot. Somewhat more ominously, in the Terminator series, the T-1000 was the most fearsome opponent, a shape-shifting liquid metal man that could take on the appearance of anyone, and its droplets could reassemble when they were inevitably blown apart. These sci-fi inventions portray the conclusion of the third digital revolution in universal replicators and programmable materials, hopefully minus the Skynet part. To realize this technological vision, in 2013 I ran a workshop with the White House to examine the research roadmap. This event was organized in response to interest across federal agencies in formulating their plans for 3D printing. I felt that these agencies were missing both the range of technologies for digital fabrication in the short term and the emerging science of fabrication in the long term. The workshop identified four stages. First, using computer and control machines to make things as found in a fab lab today. Two, rapid prototyping of rapid prototyping machines, fab labs making fab labs. Three, coding the construction of digital materials, merging all the machines in a fab lab into a single process. And four, programming materials, merging machines and materials. These stages have a natural correspondence with the exponential projection of Lass's law, the first phase, the one we're currently in, is coming to an end as the number of fab labs becomes comparable to the number of cities on the planet, a few thousand for each, for an average of one fab lab per city. The second phase is an increase by a factor of a thousand, going from the thousand fab labs now to the equivalent of a million. That's on the order of, a number of the number of local governments on the planet, making the capabilities of a fab lab widely available to individuals as well as organizations. The third phase is another increase by, the, by a factor of a thousand, from a million to the equivalent of a billion fab labs, which is the order of magnitude of the number of people on the planet. In the same way that computers and cell phones have become ubiquitous, the third phase is when access to the capabilities of a fab lab becomes not just personal, but universal. The fourth phase goes with another factor of a thousand, from a billion to the equivalent of a trillion fab labs. Along with connecting people, a billion is also the number of computers connected to the internet before the original addresses, IPv4, ran out. Taking 1,000 as an estimate of the average number of things a person possesses, a trillion is thus on the order of the total number of things people might interact with, or the number of things computers are connected to. This is when digital fabrication makes not just almost anything, but almost everything. Lass's law began by counting fab labs, which could be defined as containing the core set of technical capabilities to make almost anything, designing and scanning in 2D and 3D, fabricating with additive and subtractive processes, creating and interfacing circuits, embedding and programming computing. As this scaling progresses, we count no longer fab labs as they exist today, but rather access to the equivalent capability to fabricate physical forms and program their functions. What's changing is the inputs rather than the outputs. A fab lab today rests on a global supply chain to source things like integrated circuits, precision tooling, and polymer resins. Over time, the output will be produced within the descendants of today's fab labs, not by requiring massive upstream capital investments as is currently done, but by assembling ever more fundamental building blocks. There are two ways to project how long this transition will take. The more conservative approach is to assume that Lass's law continues to hold, with a doubling time of a year and a half. A factor of a thousand is then about 10 doublings, or 15 years. From where we are now, that's 45 years, the same run that Moore's law has had. The more ambitious projection recognizes that the technologies for all four stages can be seen in the lab today, and it's just a question of how quickly they can get out the door. We can't answer which projection will hold, but we can provide a tour of each of these stages. Community Fabrication, 1 to 1,000 
The first phase on the digital fabrication roadmap starts with the tools found in the Fab Lab today. This stage belongs in a chapter on the future because, as the author William Gibson has observed, the future is here today. It's just not very evenly distributed. Because many more people haven't yet been in a Fab Lab than have, the first step in understanding the roadmap is seeing where it starts. Cutting. Cutting tools move in two dimensions to cut out parts from flat sheets. Although that might sound to be of a limited utility, cutting can be much faster than the other processes. Cutting tools can work with materials that the other tools can't handle, and kits of these parts can be rapidly put together to make 3D objects. By far, the most popular tool in a fab lab is a laser cutter. Its only input, other than the stock to cut, is electricity, and its only output, other than the parts, is exhaust gases from the cutting process. In minutes, a laser cutter can plot out complex shapes with features as fine as the laser beam, a few thousandths of an inch. A $1,000 laser cutter can cut thin sheets of wood, cardboard, and plastic. A $10,000 one can cut larger, thicker sheets, and a $100,000 laser cutter has a much larger bed and can cut metal. The most versatile and least appreciated cutting tool moves a powered knife, commonly called a vinyl cutter, because its most common use is to cut out vinyl lettering for signs or stickers. But these tools can also cut out masks for screen printing, score origami folds in kiragami cuts, and plot flexible circuits and antennas in conductors. The largest ones can handle large cardboard sheets to cut and fold display cases and furniture. The most powerful of these tools is a water jet cutter. It shoots a fine supersonic jet of water that carries particles of a garnet abrasive. Because the particles are traveling so fast, they blast through anything they encounter, thick steel, glass, ceramic, stone. With such versatility, water jet cutters are taking over the work of other more specialized tools. The downside is they need, to, they need to be supplied with a steady stream of the abrasive, which produces an equally steady stream of waste to be disposed. The last group of cutting tools uses a wire. One kind is heated and can melt through soft materials like foams. In electrical discharge machining, a thin wire is energized with a current that makes tiny sparks that can erode deep cuts in the hardest metals. For that reason, electrical discharge machining is the tool of choice to make the precision parts required for machines to make machines. Milling. Milling machines move a rotating cutting tool in three rather than two dimensions, and more advanced ones can tilt the tool or workpiece as well as to simultaneously control four or five axes. These machines range in size from a machine that fits on a desktop to a machine that's the size of a house and their corresponding cutting torque ranges from that of a small hand drill to that of a large engine. Milling machines are noisy and messy. The cutting process and the motors that drive it are loud. The material that's removed flies off as chips that must be captured and disposed of. Depending on the material, it might be necessary to spray a lubricant over everything, and they require an assortment of tooling that needs to be regularly replaced. But in return for all of that, Milling machines can make smooth surfaces into hard in hard materials with precise features. That's why they are the tool of choice for making things like automobile and aircraft components, high-end laptop cases, custom furniture, and tools used in other production processes. Smaller, higher-precision milling machines are used for jobs like cutting out the traces in a circuit board and making molds to cast parts. Printing 3D printers deposit rather than remove material. Additive fabrication has two important differences from subtractive fabrication. Consider making a ball and socket joint. A milling machine would have to carve out the ball, then the hemispheres of the socket, which would have to be assembled around the ball. Because the 3D printer can build the part up in layers, it has access to what will become the inside as well as the outside, so that it can make the ball and the socket in one go and it can deposit material only where the parts are, so there is no scrap wasted other than possibly some extra material used for supports. The first 3D printing was done in 1986 through stereolithography, a process that scans a laser beam to, sele to selectively solidify a layer of polymer liquid that is cured by the light. Stereolithography is still used to make parts with the finest features and smoothest surfaces, because the resolution is determined by the size of the laser beam. 
The downside is that the result comes out as a gooey mess of cured and uncured polymer that needs to be cleaned, and the mechanical properties are limited to the photopolymers. The second approach, fused deposition modeling, became available in 1989. The printer feeds a polymer filament into a heated nozzle, which extrudes a thin bead that solidifies on the growing part. It's not as fine as a laser beam, but the process can now use stronger thermoplastics and is much less messy. Fused deposition modeling is most common for entry-level 3D printers because the process is so easy to implement. A more recent approach uses a, th a printer head similar to an inkjet printer's, but instead of shooting droplets of colored ink, it deposits droplets of polymer. Just as an inkjet printer can mix multiple colors, these can mix multiple materials. And the most expensive 3D printers use a much more powerful laser to selectively sinter layers of fine powder. These printers can now make strong metal parts and tough, high-temperature ceramic ones. The downside to these printers is that they are so complex they can cost a million dollars and require a dedicated room and technician to keep them running. Although 3D printers are good at creating complex geometries with, with nested features that can't be reached subtractively, these tools are slow, typically taking from hours to even days to make something. And the materials in the form that printers use them are much more expensive than the bulk materials. Other approaches can be bigger, faster, cheaper, or stronger. That's why, when all the other digital fabrication tools are available, 3D printers are only used for the jobs that they are best suited for. In the CBA shop that I run, that might be a quarter of the time. Scanning. The inverse of 3D printing is 3D scanning, the creation of a digital model from a physical object. Reasons for scanning include copying objects that don't have digital designs, sculpting physical objects as part of design workflows, creating realistic assets for computer graphics, and conserving valuable artifacts. The simplest kind of 3D scanner is just a camera. With pictures taken from many directions, photogrammetry algorithms can solve for an object's 3D geometry using just the collection of 2D pictures. Photogrammetry doesn't need specialized equipment, and it can be done anywhere, but can be confused by visual artifacts and only gives an approximate estimate of the exact shape. More accurate scanning can be done by laser scanners that follow the position of a laser beam as it is scanned across an object and by structured light scanners that project an illumination pattern on an object. But these methods still have trouble with visual artifacts, such as a shiny smooth surface that reflects the illumination away from the detector. Visual artifacts can be fixed in a light stage, which can simultaneously illuminate and collect light from all directions. Light stages determine not just geometry, but also all the optical properties required for a computer graphic model, but require much more substantial installations. The most advanced 3D scanners use x-rays to reconstruct the inside as well as the outside of objects, taking many projections from different directions in a computed tomography scanner. These scanners are also the most expensive, with costs ranging over a million dollars. Pretty nice if you can afford it. Molding. These techniques don't fit within a division between additive and subtractive processes because they encompass aspects of both. But molding tools are responsible for most of the mass-produced products around you. Digital fabrication is a direct right, meaning that everything it makes can be different. But if you do want more than one of the same thing, digital fabrication can be used to make a tool to make multiple copies of something, saving time and money per part, as well as offering enhanced surface finishes and material properties. Molding processes start by making a mold by numerically controlled or NC machining or by cutting and folding. They can also be 3D printed, but it's typically faster to remove material, and molds made that way can be smoother and stronger. Materials can then be poured, injected, inflated, drawn, spun, or pressed into the mold. This is done with plastic, metal, foam, food, glass, and concrete. The total time to make a mold is comparable to the time it takes to 3D print, but each subsequent use of the mold can take minutes or even seconds, depending on the material. Mold making used to require large production runs to justify the expense, but with the advent of low-cost NC mills, molds are now feasible for short-run production. 
For making larger, lighter things, the molds can be filled with fibers that are strong in tension, embedded in a resin matrix that is strong in compression, to produce composite parts. Carbon fiber, fiberglass, and natural fibers are commonly used, along with epoxy, plastics, and natural resins for the matrix. Composites are being rapidly adopted for saving weight, eliminating parts, and improving performance in cars, airplanes, prosthetics, and all sorts of sporting equipment. Computing. All the preceding tools are based on digital fabrication in the original sense of using computers to make things and then to control the machines to make them. This last group completes that connection by embedding computing into fabrication. What has reduced the size and cost of rapid prototyping skills is the drop in the size and the cost of the computers that control their actuators, that read their sensors, interpret commands, interface with users, and communicate with networks. Those same capabilities are now appearing in a range of formerly inanimate objects that are becoming part of an internet of things, such as intelligent infrastructure in buildings to save energy and unobtrusive medical monitoring to improve healthcare. Hobbyists today build intelligence into their rapid prototyping projects with a small single board computer with names like the Arduino and the Raspberry Pi. These cost tens of dollars, but are composed of even smaller integrated circuits called microcontrollers, which are simple but complete computer systems on a chip. Microcontrollers range in cost from dollars down to tens of cents. The circuit boards that electronic components are attached to are mass-produced by chemical etching, but this process creates hazardous waste that must be collected and safely disposed of. For short-run production, circuit boards can be made directly with digital fabrication tools, milling machines can carve the traces from copper-clad boards, vinyl cutters can plot them into flexible copper sheets, laser cutters with the right optical properties can ablate them, and certain kinds of 3D printers can extrude conducting material. The electronic components can then be attached by hand with surface mount rework tools, and for larger numbers and larger boards, they can be attached automatically with a special kind of robotic printer called a pick-and-place, which takes the components from tape reels and positions them on the board. With the ability to rapidly make programmable circuits added to rapid physical fabrication, it is possible to produce complete functioning systems, as we saw in Chapter 1. In the sections that follow, the change is not what can be made, it is what is required to do so, replacing first the room full of tools and then the inventories of materials and parts. Personal Fabrication From a Thousand to a Million The second phase in the roadmap is defined by the ability of a fab lab to make another fab lab. This will be accomplished not by reproducing the, the machines as they exist today, but by merging their capabilities with modular designs and constructions, eliminating the need to acquire and house many separate machines corresponds to the period when PCs arrived in the history of computing. The PCs were initially used by early adopters and later spread through society. The first factor of a thousand has the natural interpretation of roughly one fab lab per city on average. The natural extrapolation for this next phase is a thousand times a thousand fab labs, equipping every community of any size with the means for local production. The sales of 3D printers is already at hundreds of thousands per year, and in a few years, it's projected to reach millions. The obvious conclusion is that millions of all the other tools currently in a fab lab will be sold also, so that the full set is available everywhere. Such a scenario would present two problems. At today's prices, the cost of that many copies of that many kinds of machines would add up to a $100 billion investment, an amount approaching the size of major components of the global economy. And along with finding that much money, it would be necessary to find a corresponding amount of space for all the rooms that those machines would fill. The straightforward solution to the first problem mirrors the solution to the same problem in the first and second digital revolutions, economies of scale. Of scale. The bill of materials for rapid prototyping machines can be as low as hundreds of dollars. They currently cost much more than that because of the need to recoup development costs and sustain the small businesses that make them. A number of these small businesses aim to become big companies, mass manufacturing this, these machines for a consumer rather than a niche market, such as IBM and Apple brought the manufacturing of personal computers to scale. 
But this straightforward solution of economies of scale doesn't consider that this time around, there's an alternative. The technical goal of a fab lab has always been to make another fab lab. If what's being deployed is machines that can make more machines, then it's not a good business plan to make the machines. Instead of mass-producing the machines, you can mass-produce their components and assemble them locally. What I had initially missed was how this idea solves the second problem, that is, the amount of space that these machines occupy, by transforming the concept of what a machine is. To help drive the transition from buying to making a fab lab, in 2004 I began periodically following my rapid prototyping class, how to make almost anything, with one on machine building, how to make something that makes almost anything. Two students, Nadia Peak and Jonathan Ward, made a machine called the MTM Snap in the class. MTM standing for Machines That Make in Snap because instead of using fasteners to hold the machine together, it is snapped together with parts milled in high-density polyethylene, the dense plastic used to make um, cutting boards in the kitchen. The MTM Snap was a precision tabletop milling machine with specifications similar to a few thousand dollar machine in the Fab Lab inventory, but at about a tenth of the cost. Once we posted plans for it to, so that the machine could be made in any Fab Lab, I thought our work was done. It wasn't. It turned out that it could be made by anyone in a Fab Lab as long as you were Nadia or Jonathan. Too much knowledge and skill were required for most people to be able to successfully reproduce it, so there were many failed attempts. Instead, the design was spun off and commercialized as a finished product by the other machine company. A variant of the design became ShopBot's HandyBot machine. Another alum from the class, Max Lebovsky, started the company Form Labs to sell high-resolution consumer stereolithography 3D printers. Machine building at a fab lab in the Netherlands led to the Ultimaker family of fused deposition molding 3D printers. Although each of these machines was faster, better, and cheaper than its predecessors, all the machines do share an implicit assumption. They do what they're designed to do. This observation might sound tautological, but a close analogy with the history of computer software and networks explains both how to simplify their construction and how to eliminate the need for so many different types of machines. Software was originally written as programs that did something, then a different program could be written to do something else. That proved to be very inefficient, because there was very little reuse of code. It's no longer done that way. Instead, what's called object-oriented software is now written in reusable packages that combine routines that perform a function, the data they operate on, and the inputs and outputs to use them. These software objects can be composed to do larger tasks so that, for example, if you're starting a website, one of these could serve the web pages, one could perform electronic commerce transactions, and one could keep track of a user's identity. Computer networks were originally developed with a task in mind, such as running a factory or a bank. These special purpose networks have been largely replaced by the general purpose internet, which has, as one of its core architectural principles, what's come to be known as the end-to-end -end argument. The applications of the internet are determined by what it is connected to, not by how it's constructed. An old-fashioned dial telephone could only do what, it, what was programmed in the central phone office switch that the phone was wired to. A computer connected to the internet to make a call could itself be programmed to use video or to join a chat room. This principle of moving applications to the edge of the network isn't obvious and was in fact controversial at the time. The internet is less effective at doing any one thing than it is designed than it is something designed for that purpose, but the internet is good enough to do almost anything. The analogy between the architecture of machines and that of computer software or networks starts with the observation that a 3D printer is optimized to move the extruder as quickly as possible, whereas an NC mill must be stiffer to withstand the cutting forces on the spindle. But both types require a motion system to move some sort of head and a way to interpret commands sent to that head. Using the same motion and control system for both and just changing the head would let one machine do the work of both and would be good enough for all but the most demanding applications. 
This thought led Nadia and another student in the machine building class, Elon Moyer, who went on to found another machine company, Shaper Tools, in 2012 to make the Pop Fab, a rapid prototyping machine that folds into a briefcase and has interchangeable heads for 3D printing, NC milling, and vinyl cutting. The Pop Fab is like the laptop of fabrication. This architectural analogy becomes explicit once the intelligence in the machine is included. Each of the types of rapid prototyping machines specifies a language to tell it what to do. NC mills typically take G-codes, an odd ancient format that dates back to the early computerized photo plotters and fabric cutters. The most common format for laser cutters is HPGL, the graphics language that Hewlett-Packard used to talk to its now obsolete pen plotters. A computer in the machine then converts these commands into instructions for each of its components, such as coordinating the motion of its motors. All of this configuration specification makes it hard to change anything. If you want to add a motor to rotate apart while cutting or printing, the motor is like an old-fashioned telephone that can't do anything by itself. You have to change the language sent to the machine and the interpreter of that language within the machine before the motor can move. An endless series of committees has tried to remedy this problem by coming up with a new universal language for manufacturing. It has been a hopeless task, given the range of what people want to make and how they want to make it. Around the time we were failing to have Fab Labs replicate their existing machines, I was doing early work on what what became known as the Internet of Things. I was working with a student, Rafi Krokorian, who went on to build and run Twitter's computing infrastructure, and one of the architects of the internet, Danny Cohen. We showed that the protocols used by servers connected to the internet could be implemented in a chip, costing less than a dollar and occupying just a few millimeters of silicon, meaning that everyday objects could be connected to the internet. That way, the connection between a switch and a light, or a temperature sensor and a heater, could be selected by software, rather than being fixed by the wiring in a house. That thought extends to the part of a rapid prototyping machine. We connected all the sensors and actuators in our machines to real-time networks so that application programs could talk to the devices rather than through an interpreter, which leads to the same kinds of misunderstandings in machines that it does in diplomacy. New features could be added just by changing what was connected to the machine's network, rather than requiring changes to the controller hardware. The historical parallel was completed when Nadia and Elon, along with James Coleman, who, is, who became a lead researcher for the Zayner Company, which does rapid prototyping on architectural scales for making things like Frank Jerry's buildings, began building object-oriented hardware. These were modular machines made out of building blocks that each did a physical task, like moving an axis or turning a spindle, and were simultaneously nodes in a communication network and software objects in a control program. Now, machines lost their fixed identity. For a particular application, you might need a machine that can move quickly or with a lot of force. You might want to cut or print, or you might be making a 2D shape or an intricate 3D form. All these tasks could be composed from a common set of combined hardware and software building blocks and then reused for a different purpose. This becomes the rapid prototyping of rapid prototyping machines. As an experiment, we tried sending kits of these machine building modules to students in fab labs and found that they quickly made a range of fabrication machines ranging from fanciful to useful. Rather than having to repeatedly reinvent solutions to the same common machine-building tasks, we provided them with motors with integrated attachments for driving a machine, networked interfaces to communicate with the motors, and software components to control everything. In this way, they could concentrate on the interesting question of what they wanted their machines to do. Jens Divik, who runs a fab lab in Oslo, after spending two years doing a fab lab world tour, took on a challenge of producing these kinds of modular motion components entirely in a fab lab, with parametric designs so that their proportions could be varied. In doing so, he has eliminated almost all the finished parts that need to be purchased to make a machine, reducing it down to just the motors and electronic components. 
The path to a million fab labs, therefore, isn't ordering a million copies each of multiple types of machine that each do one thing. It is manufacturing millions of modular components that can be combined to make many different machines. These could be produced locally from modular designs for maximum customization and independence. The modules could be ordered and assembled individually for maximum flexibility and convenience. Or designs for particular combinations of them could be frozen and mass-produced for maximum integration and efficiency. The construction of such a machine becomes dynamic rather than static, changing with whether you're making a circuit, a cake, or a couch, varying the range of travel, the degrees of freedom that can move, and the end effectors that perform fabrication operations. If you look under the hood, or rather inside the case, something similar is what actually happened when computing became personal. When I was a graduate student in physics in the 1980s, computing was still done on many computers. Each of these had unique subsystems. There was no notion of interoperability. That's like a fab lab today, where the only integration between the machines is a person carrying work between them. I was the first person in my research lab to own a personal computer. PCs were just becoming available to early adopter individuals like me, but were still far from becoming universal. Unlike many computers, these were, and still are, constructed from a standard set of parts. Motherboards come in a few standard forms with sockets for interchangeable processors. There are standard inter internal connectors for plugging in various amounts of memory, graphics, and storage. Standard external connectors connect to choices for a mouse, keyboard, and monitor. Enthusiasts still choose each of these separately and assemble them themselves. Small computer companies buy the parts from other vendors. Bigger computer companies make their own parts, and these components come pre-integrated for the highest volume markets. But the whole industry grew up around de facto standards for modularity. Something similar is now happening with modular smartphones. One of the first, Google's project Aura, named after my student Aura Kanayan, who developed a mechanism for programmable mechanical connections, showed that instead of a mass manufacturer deciding what goes into your phone, you could choose from a kit of reconfigurable modules. Depending on your changing needs, you might want extra battery life, a higher resolution screen, radios that work on more than one carrier, or a better camera. Digital photography followed a similar path from specificity to generality. My first digital camera was a closed system that was primarily good for annoying my family by running out of power or storage while I took grainy pictures. These kinds of cameras with fixed function have largely disappeared, along with the lines of business that make them. For routine picture-taking, cameras have emerged with or have merged with communication and computation in smartphones. For more serious photography, the industry has settled on a standard set of camera body types, with mounts for interchangeable families of lenses and interfaces for accessories like types of camera flash. For personal fabrication, motherboards or camera bodies correspond to the motion systems that are common to anything that makes anything. The motion systems come in different sizes, shapes, and speeds, but are otherwise a universal platform. And the parallel to camera lenses or computer monitors are the end effectors that are attached to the motor systems and add or remove material. In the way you buy a computer or a camera, you could purchase all these elements prepackaged, or for better performance and more versatility, you could purchase them as parts of a system. But unlike buying your computer or camera, you could go one step further and use your purchase to make more of the thing you just bought. The commoditization of the components inside a PC has had an unexpected impact at the extreme other end of computing in the giant data centers which are at the heart of the biggest organizations. Jason Taylor, my former student now in charge of Facebook's computing infrastructure, leads the Open, Open Compute project. The project has defined a tightly integrated modular PC that can be stacked in huge numbers to build the data centers that are rapidly displacing traditional mainframes. In cloud computing, users can distribute work over as many of these PCs as they need, and the service providers can add capacity to in, in individual increments to meet the demands of users. 
organizations are increasingly finding that it's cheaper, more reliable, and more flexible to purchase computing as a service in this way than to purchase computers. An emerging concept of cloud manufacturing aims to do the same for making things. To build on the personalization of fabrication, it follows the same steps of standardization, commoditization, and modularization. In this way, cloud manufacturing could provide capacity and capabilities in increments that can continuously span from the needs of an individual of those of a corporation. The capacity and capabilities could be shared remotely or introduced locally so that, say, a growing bakery could assemble customized manufacturing machines to perform repetitive, labor-intensive tasks that are bottlenecks in this business, augmenting rather than replacing its workers with accessible automation tools. Universal Fabrication from a Million to a Billion The third phase in this roadmap is universal fabrication, when the materials as well as the designs move from analog to digital. In the transition from community to personal fabrication, multiple kinds of machines will be merged into one. In the transition from personal to universal fabrication, multiple kinds of processes will be merged into one, the assembly and disassembly of discrete building blocks. This phase mirrors the period when computing and communications became so cheap and easy to use in smartphones that markets began to become saturated with more phones than people. To become available to billions rather than millions of people, the capabilities of a fab lab can no longer require the existing extensive supply chains or generate the same ongoing waste streams. Closing the loop from production to consumption and back again requires that the essential inputs be reduced to a feedstock of a small set of parts and that recycling be replaced with the reversible process of disassembly. In 2006, struck by the parallel with digital computing and communications, I defined digital materials as those constructed from a discrete set of parts, reversibly assembled with a discrete set of relative positions and orientations. These attributes allow the global geometry to be determined from local constraints. Errors in assembly can be recognized and repaired, and dissimilar materials can be joined. Finally, materials can be disassembled and reused rather than disposed of. The individual elements can be mass-produced. The customization comes in how they're put together. A number of industrial processes, including molding, rolling, stamping, and synthesis, can make large volumes of identical parts at low cost. Lego bricks and amino acids are familiar examples of systems of parts with these attributes. What's not yet familiar is how many other things can be made by discrete assembly and disassembly rather than by continuous additive and subtractive processes. Among the highest performance structures made today are the airframes for jumbo jets. To reduce the plane's weight while still retaining their ability to carry tremendous loads, manufacturers now make the airframes by winding filaments of carbon fiber in an epoxy matrix. The latest of the airplanes made this way, Boeing's 787 and Airbus's A350, each required billions of dollars of investment in their supply chains to produce their composite parts. One tool the size of the fuselage or wing is required to lay up tapes of the filament. Another even larger tool is required to compress and cure the wound filament in the resin matrix. Then, these giant parts must be transported long distances for their final assembly. In 2008, I was approached about one of the biggest problems in this manufacturing process, how to join composite parts without introducing weakness at the joint. Right now, parts are joined either by drilling holes for bolts or using glue. Although model airplanes have been 3D printed, that doesn't help here for two reasons. First, 3D printers are nowhere near the size of a jumbo jet. And two, they can't match the materials performance of what comes out of the composite tools. In 2012, my student Kenny Chung, now leading a manufacturing research program at NASA, and I showed that instead of winding one long fiber or extruding lots of short fibers, the solution is to assemble fiber loops that are small compared with the size of the structure, which for airframes corresponds to a few centimeters across. Based on the concept of digital materials, we mass-produced carbon fiber composite loops and then linked them in cellular structures. These set the world record for the highest modulus, or stiffest, ultralight material, because instead of joining a few big parts, we created sparsely filled volumes that could be assembled in any size or shape. We are now developing the robotic equivalent of ribosomes to replace these parts, 
which work by attaching and moving relative to the structure that they're building so that a small army of these assemblers, fed by a supply of fiber loops, can build the entire airframe. For this application, it's not necessary to place individual atoms. The fiber loops serve as the basic building blocks. By adding a second part type that can flex rather than be stiff as possible, we then show that these structures can be designed to, to deform in prescribed ways, such as making airplane wings that can continuously change shape like birds' wings, rather than pivoting the rigid control flaps on an existing wing. Morphing wings have been a long-standing goal in aviation, but they wouldn't be more efficient and agile, but prior attempts were hampered by the weight and complexity of the mechanisms required. Because our wings were assembled out of these building blocks, they effectively became the mechanism. Objects with finer feature can be made through the assembly of smaller parts. Although you might expect the discrete construction to nevertheless be noticeable on smooth surfaces, recall that pictures used to be shot on film and video viewed on phosphor screens. From early grainy digital cameras and blocky computer monitors, the resolution of cameras and displays can now exceed the resolution of the human eye so that images are nearly universally recorded and viewed as discrete picture elements, called pixels. Digital materials are built from discrete 3D volume elements, or voxels. Once these shrink to around a millionth of a meter, they can no longer be perceived by our unaided senses. Beyond rigid and flexible part types to make structures and mechanisms, many more things can be made with just a few more part types. If you zoom in on a computer, you'll first pass through the case. Then you'll see a wiring harness terminating in connectors on printed circuit boards. The boards have discrete components and integrated circuits attached. The integrated circuits contain myriad elements, which end with the smallest parts of the integrated circuits, with sizes now approaching nanometers, which is a billionth of a meter, corresponding to tens of atoms across. The transition to digital materials doesn't need to start with these smallest features. The components can be replaced in stages. A typical spacing for wiring and connectors is a tenth or a fifty thousandth of an inch. DigiKey, the vendor that I buy electronic components from, stocks a half million connectors. That's not the inventory, it's the number of distinct models, differing thing in things like the number of positions, how many rows they are in, and which way they face. All of them can be assembled from just two smaller part types, a conducting part and an insulating one. The connectors are then attached to circuit boards, which have conducting traces etched on laminating layers, with a characteristic size of ten thousandths of an inch. The circuit boards can again be assembled from the conducting and insulating part types, including the tricky-to-manufacture connections called vias that run between the layers. Also on the circuit boards are discrete components like capacitors, inductors, and resistors. The capacitors contain electric fields and are used in filters and power supplies. DigiKey stocks around a half million of these also. The capacitors vary in capacity and package size. Again, these can be assembled from just the conducting and insulating part types, likewise for the inductors, which contain magnetic fields. When the part size reaches a micron, a millionth of a meter, it's possible to match the density of capacitance and inductance in components the way they're made today. The resistors, which regulate the flow of current, require one more part type, a single resistive one. By combining resistive, conducting, and insulating parts, you can match the values and packages of, can you guess, the half million types of resistors that DigiKey stocks. We're up to three part types so far to replace millions of components. Transistors for logic require a few more, semiconducting parts whose conductivity can be varied, with versions doped to enhance and deplete the number of electrons. Motors to move things need a few more parts still permanent magnets, and materials that guide magnetic fields. Taken together, this catalog of parts adds up to tens of types to reproduce the functionality of much of modern technology. That happens to be comparable to the number of amino acids in biology, but these human-made parts have properties that aren't available in biology. This radical inventory reduction has a number of profound implications. The first consequence comes in the assembler that places the parts, the micro-robotic equivalent of a child's placing a Lego brick. This assembler is finally a truly personal fabricator, replacing the range of machines in a fab lab today with a single integrated process. The second implication is the impact on the supply chain. 
The assembler requires a feedstock of tens of part types. A fab lab today requires that many vendors to supply all the types of consumables that it needs. The third impact is a result of the reversibility. The existence of trash reflects a lack of information about what it contains. Discrete disassembly is symmetrical with discrete assembly. Digital material parts can be reused for many cycles until the error rate eventually requires them to be remanufactured. This reuse cycle marks the end of practices that fill landfills with obsolete technological trash. Now anything discarded becomes instead a supply of parts for new construction. The combination of assembly and disassembly adds up to reconfigurability. Rather than make a binary decision to keep or dispose of something, you can continuously modify a product throughout its lifetime to reflect your changing interests and needs. All these attributes are particularly important at the end of long supply chains. The longest of these is sending things to outer space. Material orbiting the Earth is roughly worth its weight in gold because of the cost to get it there. But at the end of the mission, satellites either burn up in the atmosphere or become space junk because there's no way to reuse their parts. Making spacecraft that can be disassembled and reconfigured is emerging as one of the early drivers for the adoption of digital materials. In situ resource utilization is the term for going into space without luggage by using locally available materials rather than bringing them from Earth. Work on this objective has typically had an implicit assumption that the goal is to pass through the stages of the Industrial Revolution to be able to replicate technology on Earth. A model for how to do this is a wonderful series of books by David, by David Gingery. The first book is about how to make a charcoal furnace, and then the books progress through hand tools up to making a complete machine shop. In 2016, I collaborated with 20th Century Fox and NASA on an event that explored the science behind moving to Mars for the release of the home edition of the movie The Martian. The development of digital materials provides a very different answer to the profound question of the minimum requirements to bootstrap a technological civilization. Instead of ending up again with an inventory of half a million types of resistors, capacitors, and connectors, you just need to find tens of material properties, conducting, insulating, magnetizing, etc., and form them into discrete building blocks and then assemble a society. Ubiquitous Fabrication From 1 Billion to 1 Trillion The final phase in the roadmap progresses from digital fabrication for everyone to digital fabrication in everything. This phase corresponds to how the internet spread from computers to people to things. It will be accomplished by digitizing the construction of the machines as well as the materials. The distinction between a machine and what it makes then disappears as the materials themselves become programmable. To see the need for this stage of digital fabrication, consider the speed of the assembly process. A simple calculation shows that there's a serious problem. The fastest current comparable operation is an inkjet printer, which produces on the order of 10,000 drops per second. If a cubic meter volume were created with cubic millimeter parts at that ambitious rate, i.e. 10,000 cubic millimeter parts per second, then the process would take about a day. This is how long it takes a 3D printer to make something that large with features that fine. But if the part size is shrunk to the tenth of a millimeter, the time needed to make a cubic meter object increases to three years. And if the parts were a hundred times smaller still, like a micron, which is around the limit of what our eyes and fingers can detect, the time grows to three million years, a long time to wait for a job to finish. The process could be sped up by placing more than one part at a time, as an inkjet does with its several nozzles. Using more parts at once might speed things up by a factor of 10 or 100, but placing a million parts at once isn't feasible because of the sensitivity to their relative misalignment. The biological solution to this problem is replication. The ribosomes make proteins, the ribosomes that make proteins also make ribosomes. The number of ribosomes varies with the needs of the cell but can reach millions per cell. With that many assemblers running in parallel, we're down to 30 years to fill the cubic meter with micron-sized parts, still a long time. But the ribosomes make the proteins to make cells, which then make more cells. The body has around 10 to the 13 cells. The assembly rate of all those ribosomes and all those cells brings the time down to a tenth of a millisecond, 
to place that many parts. Hmm. The ribosomes are much slower, though. They run at one part per second, in their case, an amino acid, which brings the time up to one second. And not all cells have that many ribosomes, so assuming a thousand ribosomes per cell, the time to place a billion parts is around a minute. The point is that what scales isn't how fast an assembler can operate or how many parts it can place at once, it is the exponential growth in capacity that comes from the assembler's ability to make assemblers from the parts that they are assembling. Ooh. This recursion is essential for the ability to build up from the smallest part size to the largest system size in a sane amount of time. The technical term for materials that can be instructed to change shape, like the T-1000 liquid metal man, is programmable matter, and the technical term for materials that can autonomously organize, like his droplets, is self-assembly. Unfortunately, programmable matter and self-assembly have largely been desirements, that is, things that exist in research program statements but not in reality. The actual efforts to date have landed far from the vision, with either small numbers of relatively large and complex but capable robotic modules, or larger numbers of simpler elements that can't do very much. Research on both attributes aspires to emulate the way biological systems can grow, evolve, and repair themselves. But at its heart, biology isn't based on self-assembling programmable matter. Instead, there's a clear division of labor. Instructions arrive at the ribosome via messenger RNA molecules, amino acids arrive via transfer RNA molecules, and the ribosome then follows a carefully choreographed coded sequence to produce proteins. Then, molecules called chaperones guide the folding of the proteins into their final functional form. The individual amino acids aren't themselves programmable. The programmability comes from the bootstrapping of ribosomes assembling amino acids to make more ribosomes. If biology can already do all this, why not just harness it to grow everything? Although it is increasingly feasible to program biology, we rely on many things that can't be made that way. The materials of molecular biology cannot synthesize good electrical conductors that can carry high current and high-speed signals over long distances, nor can they make high-temperature components capable of withstanding the loads and temperatures in a jet engine, per se. Nevertheless, the same kind of bootstrapping is possible in assembling an assembler out of non-biological materials. Insulating and flexural parts can make the mechanical structure and mechanisms. Conductive, conducting and resistive parts can make the wiring and passive components. Semiconducting parts can make the logic to program the assembler, and magnetic parts can make the motors to move the assembler. Once one assembler is made, it can then make more assemblers, or anything else, out of the parts. The replicator is an assembler that can assemble assemblers out of the parts that it is assembling. Ooh. This is the realization of von Neumann's vision of a self-reproducing machine as a model for life. Evolution began with the molecular progenitors of life, progressing from evolving molecules to evolving cells, to organs, to organisms, to species, and what's now arguably evolving its civilizations and ideas. The final phase in the digital fabrication roadmap completes the arc by allowing evolving bits to rearrange atoms and vice versa. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.